Chapter twenty five of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty five. We sometimes think we might have loved more in kinder circumstances if someone had not died or if someone else had not turned away from us. Vain self deception. The love we have given is all we had to give. If we had had more in us, it would have come out. The circumstances of life always give scope for love, if they give scope for nothing else. There is no stony desert in which it will not grow, no climate, however bleak, in which its marvellous flowers will not open to perfection. M. N. Two days later, when Janey was pacing in the lime-walk of the Halver Gardens, Mr. Sterling joined her. She had known him slightly ever since he had become her mother's tenant and their neighbour at Noyes but her acquaintance with him had never gone beyond the thinnest conventional civility. The possibility that Mr. Sterling might have been an acquisition in a preposterously dull neighbourhood had not occurred to Janie and Roger. They did not find Riff dull, and they were vaguely afraid of him as clever. The result had been that they seldom met, and he was quickly aware of Janie's surprise at seeing him. He explained that he had been to call on her at the Dower House, and the servant said she had gone up to the gardens, and, finding the gate unlocked, he had ventured to follow her. She saw that he had come for some grave reason, and they sat down on the green wooden seat which followed the semicircle in the yew-hedge. Far off at the other end of the lime-walk was another semicircular seat. There had been wind in the night, and the rough grass that had once been a smooth-shaven lawn, and the long paved walk, were strewn with curled amber leaves, as if it were autumn already. Mr. Sterling looked with compassion at Janey's strained face and sleepless eyes. "'I've come to see you,' he said, "'because I know you are a friend of Miss George's.' He saw her wince. "'I'm not sure I am,' she said hoarsely, involuntarily. "'I am quite sure,' he said. There was a moment's silence. "'I came to tell you that my nephew has started for Japan,' and that he has promised me upon his oath that he will never speak again of what he gabbled so foolishly. He meant no harm, but stupid people generally managed to do a great deal. The worst of Jeff's stupidity was that it was the truth which he blurted out. "'I knew it,' said Janey, below her breath. "'I was sure of it.' "'So was I,' said Mr. Sterling sadly. "'One can't tell why one believes certain things and disbelieves others.' "'But Jeff's voice had that mysterious thing, the ring of truth in it. "'I knew at once you recognised that. "'That is why I am here.' "'Janey looked straight in front of her. "'Of course I hoped, you and I both hoped,' he continued, "'that Jeff might have been mistaken. "'But he was not. "'He was so determined to prove to me that he was not, "'that he unpacked one of his boxes already packed to start for Japan, "'and got out his last year's notebooks.' I kept one of them. He did not like it, but I thought it was safer with me than with him. Mr. Sterling produced out of a much-battered pocket a small sketch-book with an elastic band round it, and turned the leaves. Each page was crowded with pencil studies of architecture, figures, dogs, children, nursemaids, small elaborate drawings of door-knockers and leaden pipe-heads, vague scratches of officials and soldiers, the individuality of each caught in a few strokes. He turned the pages with a certain respectful admiration. "'He has the root of the matter in him,' he said. "'He will arrive.' Jenny was not impressed. 
she thought the sketches very unfinished. Then he stopped at a certain page. None of them could help smiling. The head-waiter, as seen from behind, napkin on arm, dish on spread hand, superb, debonair, stout but fleet. Alphonse was scribbled under it. Fontainebleau, September the 10th, and the year. Mr. Sterling turned the leaf, turned three or four leaves, all with Mariette scrawled on them. Mariette had evidently been the French chambermaid, and equally evidently had detained Jeff's vagrant eye. Another page. A man leaning back in his chair laughing. Dick Legay was written under it. "'Is it like him?' said Sterling. "'It's him,' said Janey. Yet another page. They both looked in silence at the half-dozen masterly strokes with Mrs. Legay written under them. "'It is unmistakable,' Mr. Sterling said. "'It is not only she, but it is no one else.' His eyes met Janey's. She nodded. He closed the little book, put its elastic band round it, and squeezed it into his pocket. "'Why did you bring that to show me?' she said harshly. It seemed as if he had come to tempt her. "'I knew,' he said, "'that for the last two days you must have been on the rack, torn with doubt as to the truth of what my miserable nephew had affirmed. You look as if you had not slept since. Anything is better than suspense. Well, now you know it is true.' "'Yes, it is true,' said Janey slowly, and she became very pale. Then she added, with difficulty, "'I knew—we all knew that Dick had had someone, a, a woman, with him at Fontainebleau when he was taken ill. His valet told my aunt he had not gone alone, and the hotel-keeper told her the same. She ran away when Aunt Jane came. Aunt Jane never saw her. We never knew who she was.' "'Till now,' said Mr. Sterling softly. Two long-winged baby swallows were sitting on their breasts on the sunny-flagged path, resting, turning their sleek heads to right and left. Mr. Sterling watched them intently. "'Why should any one but you and I ever know?' he said, with a sigh, after they had flown. He had waited, hoping Janey would say those words, but he had had to say them himself instead. She did not answer. She could not. A pulse in her throat was choking her. This, then, was what he had come for, to persuade her to be silent, to hush it up. All men were the same about a pretty woman. A great tumult clamoured within her, but she made no movement. "'I may as well mention that I am interested in Miss George's,' he went on quietly. "'Don't you find that rather ridiculous, Miss Manvers? An elderly man of fifty, old enough to be her father? It's quite absurd and very undignified, isn't it? You're much too courteous to agree with me. But I can see you think it is so, whether you agree or not.' Wise women often justly accuse us silly, susceptible men of being caught by a pretty face. I've been caught by a sweet face. I never exchanged a word with Miss George's till yesterday, so I've not had the chance of being attracted to her by her mind. And it's not her mind that draws me. It is her face. I've known her by sight for some time. I go to church in order to see her. I called on her two aunts solely in order to make her acquaintance. The older one, the portentous authoress, is the kind of person whom I should creep down a sewer to avoid. Even the saintly invalids doesn't call out my higher nature. 
Mr. Sterling became aware that Janie was lost in amazement. Irony is singularly unsuited to a narrow outlook. He waited a moment, and then went on, choosing his words carefully, as if he were speaking to someone very young. It is quite a different thing to be attracted and to have any hope of marriage, isn't it? I have, and had, no thought of marrying Miss George's. I am aware that I could not achieve it. Men of my age do not exist for women of her age. But that does not prevent my having a deep desire to serve her. And service is the greater part of love, isn't it? I am sure you know that, whose life is made up of service of others. I am not sure I do, she said stiffly. She was steeling herself against him. If he found her difficult, he gave no sign of it. He went on tranquilly. As one grows old, one sees, oh, how clearly one sees, that the only people whom one can be any real use to are those whom one loves with one's whole heart. Liking is no real use. Pity and duty are not much either. They are better than nothing, but that is all. Love is the one weapon, the one tool, the one talisman. Now we can't make ourselves love people. Love is the great gift. I don't, of course, mean the gift of a woman's love to a man, or of a man's to a woman. I mean the power to love anyone devotedly, be they who they may, is God's greatest gift to us, his children. And he does not give it to us very often. To some he never gives it. Many people go through life loved and cherished, who seem to be denied his supreme blessing, that of being able to love, of seeing that wonderful light rest upon a fellow-creature. And as we poor elders look back, we see that there were one or two people who crossed our path earlier in life, whom we loved, or could have loved, and whom we have somehow lost, perhaps by their indifference, perhaps by our own temperament, but whom, nevertheless, we have lost. When the first spark is lit in our hearts of that mysterious flame which it sometimes takes us years to quench, one does not realise it at the time. I did not. Twenty-five years ago, Miss Bambers, before you were born, I fell in love. I was at that time a complete egoist, a very perfect specimen, with the superficial hardness of all crustaceans who live on the defensive and wear their bones outside like a kind of armour. She was a year or two younger than I was, just about Miss George's age. Miss George's reminds me of her. She is taller and more beautiful, but she reminds me of her all the same. I was not sure whether she cared for me, and I had a great friend, and he fell in love with her too, and I renounced her and withdrew in his favour. I went away without speaking. I thought I was acting nobly. He said there was no one like me. Thoreau had done the same, and I worshipped Thoreau in my youth, and had been to see him in his log hut. I was sustained in my heartache by feeling I was doing heroic action. It never struck me I was doing it at her expense. I went abroad, and after a time she married my friend. Some years later I heard he was dying of a terrible disease in the throat, and I went to see him. She nursed him with absolute devotion, but she would not allow me to be much with him. I put it down to a kind of jealousy, and after his death I tried to see her, but again she put difficulties in the way. At last I asked her to marry me, and she refused me. "'Because you had deserted her to start with,' said Janie. "'No, she was not like that. 
because she was dying of the same disease as her husband. She had contracted it from him. That was why she had never let me be much with him, or afterwards with her. When I knew, I was willing to risk it, but she was not. She had her rules, and from them she never departed. She let me sit with her in the garden, and to the last she was carried out to her long chair, so that I might be with her. She told me it was the happiest time of her life. I found that from the first she had loved me, and she loved me to the last. She never reproached me for leaving her. She was a simple person. I told her I had done it on account of my friend, and she thought it very noble of me, and said it was just what she would have expected of me. There was no irony in her. And she slipped quietly out of life, keeping her ideal of me to the last. "'I think it was noble, too,' said Janey stolidly. "'Was it?' I never considered her for a moment. I had had the desire to serve her, but I never served her. Instead I caused her long, long unhappiness, for my friend had a difficult temperament, and suffering, and early death. I never realised that she was alive, vulnerable, sensitive. I should have done better to have married her and devoted myself to her. I have never wanted to devote myself to any woman since. We should have been happy together, and she might have been with me still, and we might have had a son who would have just been the right age to marry Miss George's. "'You would not have wanted him to marry her now,' said Janey hoarsely. "'You would not want her to marry anyone she were fond of.' Among a confusion of tangled threads Mr. Sterling saw a clue at last. A dragonfly alighted on the stone at his feet, its long orange body and its gauze wings gleaming in the vivid sunshine. It stood motionless, save for its golden eyes. Even at that moment his mind, intent on another object, unconsciously noted and registered the transparent shadow on the stone of its transparent wings. "'I think,' he said, "'if I'd had a son who was trying to marry her, I should have come to you just as I have come now, and I should have said, "'Why should anyone but you and I ever know?' "'No, no, you wouldn't.' said Janey, as if desperately defending some position which he was attacking. "'You will want to save him at all costs.' "'From what? From the woman he loves? I have not found it such great happiness to be saved from the woman I loved.' Janey hesitated, and then said, "'From someone unworthy of him.' Mr. Sterling watched an amber leaf sail to the ground. Then he said slowly, how do I know that Annette is unworthy of him? She may have done wrong and still be worthy of him. Do you not see that if I decided she was unworthy and hurried my son away, I should be acting on the same principle as I did in my own youth, the old weary principle which has pressed so hard on women that you can treat a fellow-creature like a pitcher or a lily or a sum of money? I handed over my love just as if she had been a lily. How often I had likened her to one! But she was alive, poor soul, all the time, and I only found it out when she was dying, years and years afterwards. Only then did my colossal selfishness confront me. She was a fellow creature like you and me. What was it Sherlock said? If you prick us, do we not bleed? Now, for all we know for the contrary, Annette may be alive. His grave eyes met hers with a light in them, gentle, inexorable. 
Unless we are careful, we may make her bleed. We have the knife ready to our hands. If you were in her place and had a grievous incident in your past, would anything wound you more deeply than if she, she your friend, living in the same village, raked up that ugly past and made it public for no reason? But there is a reason, said Janie passionately, not a reason that every one should know, God forbid, but that one person should be told who may marry her in ignorance, and who would never marry her if she knew what you and I know. Never, never, never. And what would you do in her place, in such a predicament? I should not be in it, because when he asked me to marry him I should tell him everything. Perhaps that is just what she will do. Knowing her intimately, as you do, can you think that she would act meanly and deceitfully? I can't. Janie avoided his searching glance and made no answer. "'You can't either,' he said tranquilly. "'And do you think she would lie about it?' "'No,' said Janie slowly, against her will. "'Then let us, at any rate, give her her chance of telling him herself.' He got up slowly, and Janie did the same. He saw that her stubbornness, though shaken, was not vanquished, and that he should obtain no assurance from her that she would be silent. "'And let us give this man, whoever he may be, his chance too,' he said, taking her hand and holding it. He felt it tremble, and his heart ached for her. He had guessed. "'The chance of being loyal, the chance of being tender, generous, understanding. Do not let us wreck it by interference. This is a matter which lies between her and him, and between her and him only. It may be the making of him.' It would have been the making of me, if I could have but taken it, my great chance, if I had not preferred to sacrifice her in order to be a sham hero. End of chapter 25